becoming simply a technician. There's no feeling, there's no drama, there's no passion. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bot? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out and enjoy a song? It's about time in a film nothing happened. What a brave choice a director made. What a, what a pioneer this guy is. Let's do nothing. Do you know anything about the art of film production? Well, I like to think so. Is this where I go to be a star? This is where you go to sacrifice, learn your craft, and work hard. Movies. Mm -hmm. Well, let's yeah. talk movies, okay? Pick this up. Roll sound. Roll camera. Speed. Action kids. Action kids. Welcome to Scene by Scene. This is a film discussion podcast where we break down story and technique from a filmmaker's and film lover's perspective. My name's Joe. And my name's Justin. In this episode, we'll be discussing Trey Edward Schultz. It comes at night. Our discussion will be spoiler heavy, and you may find this discussion more engaging if you've seen the film before listening. Joe. Second episode of our, what are we calling this? Art house horror, elevated horror. We both hate these terms. I would like to at some point have the discussion about whether this film fits that category. We did that last time, so let's do it again at some point. And because I think there's been a debate online. I think that there's probably two big questions or two main questions when it comes to this film. The first one is, does it actually fit the elements or criteria of being a horror film? And I'm not going to lie, when I made this pick, that was on my mind because I have my thoughts, I have my feelings about it. The other question that's often brought up that I guess I'll post to you right now is, Justin, nothing actually came at night. So what does that mean? I say that in jest because as I was kind of going through, like looking at, you know, other people's thoughts on the film and critiques. And, you know, I, I think that that is kind of one of those criticisms. I have my feelings on that criticism, but it is one of those criticisms that you often see on Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, Letterboxd reviews. Justin, does anything actually come at night here? I think things do come at night. So yeah, the two common complaints is what is it? Nothing comes at night. What the hell does this title mean? And if you go into the film expecting like a monster of some kind, there's no monster. I also think that's incorrect. I think there are many things that come at night and I think there is a monster or monsters in the film. It's just not what people maybe went in expecting. And in that way, it is potentially a letdown or a disappointment. But I think to say that it doesn't happen at all or it doesn't exist at all is also incorrect. I, I think this is a horror film. And I honestly have a, maybe a different perspective than some people on this, which probably doesn't surprise you, Joe. Should I just tell you what it is now? Yeah, let's give the big reveal here right up front. I think this is a horror movie and it's far more conventional than I had expected. More conventional, okay. So that's a relative statement because there are obviously degrees in which something can be either more or less conventional. And I think there are elements in the film that are unconventional, specifically the ambiguity. 
But I think a lot of the elements that make it horror, a lot of the filmmaking elements, are far more conventional than I had initially expected going into it. And I think we want to kind of talk about the marketing and, and sort of expectations before we really kind of dive into the movie, maybe. I guess I had my own expectations based off the knowledge that I personally had. Based off that, I felt like I didn't get what I was expecting. Not that I disliked what I got. The question is like, is it horror? And then another question maybe being, is it elevated horror, for lack of a better term? And I question that. I don't know if it is. It's tough. It does leave a lot of questions unanswered, which people aren't going to like. But in terms of the filmmaking, I think it goes against what is typically done in what people categorize as art house or elevated. So I, I think we're going to start off with a little bit of a disagreement here because I think that there's elements to this that make it more art house horror. You know, we'll talk about sort of the backlash and the the marketing of the film and those items, but you said it's kind of conventional to some degree. I agree with that. I would say that there's very conventional horror filmmaking elements to this. Why I do think that this is more of the art house horror and why to me it does fit that mold is the lack of that traditional creature the zombie what whatever the case may be to me the true monsters of this are the people themselves that piece of it people as monsters which is kind of an age old you know you can go all the way back to night of the living dead and that's there that's prevalent there along with the atmosphere the isolation i think it qualifies for me because of those things and how those are used i also don't think that this film is that horror movie that's going to get traditional horror fans on board. And I, I think that's also something that stands out to me for art house horror. You have art house horror, something like maybe a hereditary or, you know, you brought possession in. You know, we've talked about other films like The Witch or The Lighthouse, any number of options that we even discuss doing for this podcast. While those have their fans, I still think that those can be a a lot of those can be very trying for your traditional horror fans. So certain films, such as this one, I don't think necessarily fit the traditional definition of a horror film. Well, I don't disagree with anything you said. I do feel like there is almost moments of sort of forcing a creature into the film. I think the dream sequences are, apart from the waking up from a nightmare being a well-worn horror trope, I think the inclusion of the infected person sort of spewing black sludge or whatever from their mouth, and then frequently getting musical stingers or jump scares are the things that make it more conventional than I had initially expected. You're not going to get the immediate sort of pleasures of an action movie or a horror film that you would get in a more traditional film. It is here. This is like an argument in which we disagree. I want to clarify that I'm not trying to say that this is like a horror film that teenagers who go to see a, a horror film on Friday night at the theater are going to enjoy. Obviously not trying to make that argument, but it just was, it was something, I guess, in between 
what I would normally categorize as the quote-unquote art house and what I would categorize as the traditional horror film. You look at a film like Night of the Living Dead and there are the zombies, there's the creatures, there's like, okay, here's the obvious fours. And that's kind of window dressing for the things underneath where the horror really is. And that's other humans, other people. And why I don't view this as conventional is because it doesn't have that window dressing. I think it does. I think it's the dream sequences. I think they capitalize on horror iconography. They utilize jump scare techniques. For a film that's about a family, about a situation, and we can interpret that the dreams have purpose. I'm not saying they don't have purpose, but you could also accomplish that purpose through other ways. Even if we say we want to rely on the dreams as a way to represent Travis's fear, or whether we want to even maybe imply that it's a symptom of the illness, you can incorporate dreams in a way that doesn't use horror imagery so much. Do you feel that the dream sequences, acknowledging they probably do have some meaning and we can interpret them certain ways, do you feel like those are just there to kind of serve the traditional horror tropes? Yeah. If Justin could take, you know, an axe to this film, those scenes would be gone because they're just dream sequences trying to force feed these horror elements to it. But I don't think they have to be cut out completely. But here's an example. What if one of the dreams was Travis rolls over in bed? You know, he sees Bud sitting on the other bed, staring at him with black eyes and we hold on that and then we cut to travis opening his eyes and waking up would that convey everything that the dream sequences are potentially trying to convey without relying on the music stings and the loud screaming they purposely dip the soundtrack it gets very quiet and then they hit you with a loud scream or they hit you with the musical sting These are actively exploiting the idea of jump scares. That is a traditional, conventional horror filmmaking technique. I'm not necessarily against dream sequences. I'm not necessarily against Bud as a quote-unquote zombie. And this maybe leads into filmmaking, but it's the way it's executed. Would you like to talk about your experience with the film and maybe even with Trey Edward Schultz? I remember going to see this in 2017 in the theater. I remember watching the trailer for the very first time and I was interested. It's almost like the Cloverfield marketing campaign where it's like, what is it? Cloverfield had far more ambiguity until you actually saw the movie. I remember going to see it and having a certain level of expectation of, okay, you know, I'm I'm curious what is this thing? What is the what is it that is coming at night? I wasn't one of those people that walked out of the theater saying, well, nothing came at night or nothing happened, which again, I think that's a very common criticism of this film. But I was actually very like captivated with it because, well, yeah, I mean I I will acknowledge it's a little bit more traditional when it comes to certain elements. I thought it was sort of, I don't want to use the term bold decision-making, but I guess 
decision making that is a little bit braver to not necessarily devolve into zombies are attacking the house at the end or the film giving you all of these answers. That's what I actually really like about this film is the way it kind of withholds information, the way it doesn't necessarily spell everything out for you. You know, there are some things that, yes, I I won't argue that are very overt and, you know, very much in your face, but I still think that the way that information is presented or withheld really worked for the film. And even upon rewatch, I felt like a lot of that was still there for me and still carried over. This was not a Synecdoche, New York situation where I had a completely different experience. So I was actually quite pleased to not have to go through that again. Yeah, I was familiar with the film, never saw it. The thing that struck me when it first came out, or I guess maybe before it came out, was the poster with the dog barking at something in the woods and at night, I thought was a really evocative image and did make me want to go see the film. That with the title, I do actually like the title a lot. Again, it was, as we discussed these maybe newer films, this is several years old at this point, but newer, I've sort of let a lot of these slip past me without ever giving them the chance. So this is another one of those. So obviously I was curious, but just never got around to seeing it. I'm sure our listeners who have been with us for a little bit here may have noticed a pattern where Justin goes a little something a little bit older. I generally try to do something a little bit newer, and that's to try to get you into some things that have been made after, you know, 1995. Joking aside, I was actually hopeful that there would be things that you would find with this one that you would kind of latch on to, because I I think that there's elements to this that I see this is the way Justin would do some of these things. There were certain like decision-making elements that I'm like, these are things that having worked with you, I could see you making similar or the same decisions. I think that's probably true. And there were things about the film that did work for me. There's some things that didn't, and we'll get into both. But yeah, certainly just uh, watching maybe a couple interviews with the director, I did get a sense that there are certain creative decisions that he makes or process decisions that he makes that I do respond to and I do, I guess, relate to, or I would maybe do them myself. answers. Do you have any idea what's going on out there? I'm going to try and help you and your family. I want to thank you again for letting us stay here. Just going to run through a few things. When we go out during the day, we like to stick to groups just for safety. The red door. It's the only way in and out of the house. It stays closed and locked all the time. <laughs> I have the keys. It's the only set. <laughs> Most important thing. What's he see? It's okay. Just go inside. We never go out at night. 
The door was already open when you got there. Yeah. Then who opened it? I think they're sick. Put your mask on. Nobody's sick here. Can't trust anyone but family. You don't get it. How old are you, Travis? You're lying to me. I will kill you. It Comes at Night follows this family of Paul, played by Joel Edgerton, his wife Sarah, played by Carmen Yogo, and their son Travis, played by Kelvin Harrison Jr. There's some degree of question of what it is, but there's been this like pandemic or this virus that has caused people to develop like boils and their eyes to kind of turn black. And it's kind of just like a horrific thing. The film starts with them basically having to euthanize I believe it was uh, Sarah's father, Bud. It's really kind of grieving and processing that loss. As the film progresses, Will, played by Christopher Abbott, attempts to break into the house that Paul, Sarah, and Travis reside in. Will reveals that he has a wife, uh, Kim, played by Riley Kehoe, and their son, Andrew. Paul and Sarah decide that they're going to take this family in As the film progresses, there's little cracks, little moments that kind of make you question Will. It kind of culminates with Will and Kim trying to leave. Will, Kim, and Andrew are killed by Paul. And at the end, it's revealed that Travis has been infected, as have Paul and Sarah. It's about grief. It's about distrust. It's about family. And who are you safe with? I think that there's more to it than that. But those are kind of the big themes of the movie. Not to go all like COVID discussion here. But I found this interesting watching this like post-pandemic where what happens here is like this concern over like being near like another family or another individual because, hey, it could result in me being infected and everything. Here we are several years after this film has come out, and we kind of lived through some degree of that. Watching the movie now, 2023, it's sort of impossible to not make some connections to COVID and that whole experience. Take a ma- Why's your mask on? Nobody's sick here. Take it off. Take it off. Do you want to maybe discuss the marketing, the expectations the marketing created, and maybe just briefly the the reception to this film when it first came out? I find between the two of us, maybe I'm a little bit more interested in this stuff than you. Is that fair to say? That is fair to say. And I mean, we've been throwing around maybe some ideas for non-movie discussions more broad generic discussions for just bonus episodes things like that and i think it's come up this idea of discussing marketing and specifically a24's marketing it does interest you more a24 and i i feel like i do want to give them some degree of credit because i feel like 
things have improved and there has been a noticeable shift in their marketing being a little bit more true or accurate to what kind of film you're actually getting. It Comes at Night, I think, was the most egregious and the most questionable marketing techniques where they were trying to sell you a film in a certain way. In this case, I think they were trying to push this film as a more traditional horror with that mystery of there's going to be some sort of twist, there's going to be some sort of creature a la like an M. Night Shyamalan sort of reveal. The trailer and I think even the marketing you talked about, like the poster having the image of the dog barking out into the darkness. It gives you a sense that, okay, when I buy my ticket for this movie, I sit down. At some point, I'm going to see something, some sort of creature that's terrorizing these people. And what we got was this more or less tense family drama set in a sort of post-apocalyptic world. One of the reasons that I think that I actually liked this movie when I initially had seen it, and I'm not one of those people that are disappointed or frustrated with the marketing, was because I was able to divorce myself from what the trailer was trying to sell me and what the movie ultimately ended up being. I didn't put a lot of stock or faith into the trailer, and I honestly didn't care about that. I think it's a really good trailer. I think it's a trailer that sells you a specific movie. I think the poster is the same way. It sells you a certain type of movie. But in the end, what A24 put out and what Trey Edward Schultz put out was not that thing. I don't disagree that they're different things. I I maybe disagree on whether that's a bad thing or not. You seem to be coming at this from the perspective that A24 is acting irresponsibly, correct me if I'm wrong, but that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing when they market a movie in a way that's not accurate. We could talk the ethics of how films are advertised and the element of false advertising, which I don't necessarily feel like that's the case here. I'm approaching this from the perspective of it set improper expectations and it it sought out an audience that probably wasn't going to like it unless there was something traditional or conventional like a creature, monster, or zombie. And when they didn't get that, people turned on the film. And I don't think that's necessarily fair. I'm not approaching it from an A24 responsibility, but I do think that A24 set expectations that resulted in people turning on the film. To play devil's advocate here for a second, would you agree that the marketing of a film's job is not to make people like the film? The marketing is to make people go see the film. Let's say they marketed the film that it actually was. Would anybody have gone to see it besides the people who were already sort of attached to this A24 clout that was already developing at this time? And that's a very fair point. So here's my question. Is it bad that people went to go see the movie and didn't like it? Is that worse than people not going to see the movie at all? You do have to factor in the ripple effect to this, though, because if I sold you this movie that this is going to be, you know, a a zombie movie, and what you ended up getting was this family survival film, regardless of how good or bad and the merits of the film, the audience is going to walk away feeling cheated and lied to, and it's going to result in in what happened here. Just taking Rotten Tomatoes, for example, it was incredibly divisive. Critics were 
pretty positive about it at, you know, 88% and audiences just hated it at 44%. I get your point where the marketing of the film, its goal is to get people to buy tickets and go see the movie. That is what that goal is. However, in this case, I think it also works against the film and it probably was a bit detrimental because you have a significant group of the population that had an expectation the film didn't deliver on that, and then they review bomb it, or they completely trash the film, or worse yet, they go and tell their friends, hey, don't go see this, it's it's a piece of crap. You're getting into this idea of word of mouth, but if people go to their friends and say, don't go see this movie, it's this thing and not this thing. And if the friend listens to them, they're in the group of people who was never going to go see the movie as marketed correctly anyway. I think that's maybe a little bit of a different conversation because then we get into the psychology and the herd mentality because, you know, there's... Uh, yeah, because I, I think that there's instances where I know people, I have friends where if you tell them, hey, this movie wasn't any good, oh, okay, well, I guess I'm going to skip it then. You can sway people. Word of mouth can do that. Audience scores can have that impact, just like critic scores can have that same impact. And I'm not saying that word of mouth doesn't affect people. I guess I'm making the argument, this is a film that is really made for people who are I don't think going to be swayed by word of mouth so easily. And I know I'm generalizing and I'm oversimplifying it. I guess I'm making the argument that it evens out. So the marketing was quote unquote deceptive and people walked away dissatisfied or even angry with the film and they're going to go tell their friends don't go see the film. But if they had marketed it in a more accurate fashion, I think less people would have gone to see it. You know, maybe the response in terms of overall positive or negative, it would have been a more positive response, but far less people would have seen the film. And so I don't necessarily think the marketing was negative looking at it that way. I think it's detrimental to the audience score though. Who cares? Other, other people that are... Yeah, but I'm saying those people never would have seen the film anyway. So they're not going to see the film because they heard it's bad. Or they're not going to go see the film because that does not look like a horror film. I understand your point where those people weren't going to go see it anyways, but I, I don't fully believe that. I, I think that mismarketing your film tied to those first groups of audience reviews can very quickly result in, now I'm not going to go see it because you lied to me. We've talked a lot about films lying to you, right? And how yeah. you don't trust the film anymore, right? Yeah. How is that different than the marketing is lying to me? Because they're separate things. You take the elements of the movie and that's one experience. The marketing is a completely different experience. It sets expectations, I understand that, but it doesn't ultimately affect what the movie itself is. But it does impact an audience's reaction and response to a movie. That doesn't mean you can't trust the movie, though. I view it similarly, though, where if the movie's lying to you, you can't trust the movie. If the marketing is lying to you about what the movie is, then you can't trust the marketing. Therefore, your movie becomes something else entirely. And it's easy to turn on the film. I was able to shut out the marketing, and I enjoyed the film as it was. But I do think that there is this group that 
hate this movie, not because of the movie's content or the technique or the storytelling, but because they went into it with an expectation that wasn't what it is. You you brought up M. Night and the idea of the twist. Could you look at the fact that there is no monster in this film as just a twist? And then in that way, is the marketing lying to you? Yeah, I mean, in, in a way, the twist is the monsters aren't... They're not what you thought they were. Yeah, and I think that's fair. Okay, but just a yes or no. If that's the case, is the marketing lying to you? Or is it just setting up a situation in which you can be surprised by the film? See, I can't answer that as a yes or no, because my answer is different than what conventional audiences viewed this as. I'm the one that brought up the idea that marketing is to put people in the theater, not to make people like it. But I also think in this case, the marketing is somewhat intentional, just like the title is somewhat intentional. I think there is an element of setting up expectations to subvert expectations and that being part of the point. I would agree with that. Do you think that that's something filmmakers should be able to do. Where I was coming from with this is the detriment that marketing can have on a film. I think how a film is marketed is up to those people that are stakeholders in the film. But I think that there are repercussions for films that are being sold a certain way and end up being something else completely. Yeah, I understand that. And I do agree. I just think the intention is to somewhat subvert expectations. And I do think that that can be a way of enhancing a film or a way of telling a story in a different way. But an audience does have to be open to being surprised and not getting exactly what they want. But how else do you do that? Now, I mean, obviously you can do that within the film. The beginning of the film can set up expectations and then you can subvert them later on. But how do you do that without utilizing your marketing to your advantage. Let's talk about the monsters of the film, because I think we both agree that the monsters of the film are are basically, I would say, Paul and Will. I don't know that Sarah and Kim are really given the opportunity to truly be on display as monsters. Well, see, I don't know if I agree with that, because I would say Sarah plays a big role in how that family treats Will and Kim. I think she holds more power in that family than maybe is initially seen. And she's the one who's like, if we let them go, what happens when they run out of supplies? They're going to come back here. We don't have many options. What does that mean? If they want to leave, they're going to want to take our food and water. No, I mean, why can't we just give them what's fair and take them back to the house that we're at? Where do you think they're going to go if they run out? I don't think it's just on her. Obviously, we see Paul do much worse things physically, but I think she's certainly coming from it where she's also doing these things to protect the family that are maybe not completely justified, but resulting from this place of fear. I, I would agree. I think Sarah's is more of the psychological. The decision that Will, Kim, and Andrew are even to be brought in to this house and kind of start this community was sort of pushed by Sarah. If I remember correctly, Paul brings it up as, you know, them being able to trade. It kind of seemed like Paul was content with like keeping a distance, but then Sarah 
Sarah talked about bringing them in. And while Will and Kim show up with goats and chickens, you know, Sarah and Paul still have power over them because they're under their roof. I think what you're saying is absolutely fair. I think Paul and Will are just more of the physical, while Sarah's more of the psychological. There's also this element that Travis isn't completely innocent either. You know, Travis represents this character who is, you know, it is really, I think, Travis's story. He's sort of the heartbeat of the film. He is sort of the central character. He is the heartbeat in the sense that he has compassion for these people. He hasn't been sort of hardened the way Paul has from the stress of living like this. And yet, in the end, it's somewhat his fault. He goes to his parents and says, Andrew's sick. Now, I don't think he had ill intention there, but I think that's the point. No one's goal is to hurt other people. It is completely the product of the situation they're in. And I think the ending of the film would be very different if Travis hadn't initiated everything. And so obviously he's not guilty on the same level like a Paul or Will are, but he plays a role in it. And I think the point is that all humans are capable of turning into monsters when pushed to a certain place, when they're so desperate to survive, so desperate to keep their family safe, or they're so controlled by fear, it can affect every single one of us. I want to talk about that moment that sort of leads to the downfall, because you, you brought it up, how Travis tells his parents that he thinks Andrew's sick. Is Andrew? I think you may be sick. What, what, what are you talking about? I don't know. Andrew was, he was crying and I was listening in the attic and they said he needed to leave. What? I don't think Travis is necessarily like innocent. I, I don't think that it was done with intent or intention. So I find it interesting that it turns into Travis as the catalyst for what happens. As like that scene plays out, there is almost this grounded nature to him where his parents are frantic. They're ready to basically already do the worst. And Travis is trying to to a degree, keep the peace and calm things down to the best of his ability. Even just the, you don't understand, if Andrew's sick, that means I'm sick too. Just like kind of pleading with his parents' emotion and connection to him. Well, I think that there's things that Travis does, I view it more out of naivety than intent or malice, which I think the adults more frequently have the intent. I don't know if I think that adults have intent. I think they're pushed to a place where they think this is the only option they have. But I agree with you in the sense that I think the fear gets to Travis at a certain point in which he he feels compelled to tell his parents. It's almost like he thinks that they'll have some sort of solution or at the very least they'll they'll just part ways and that'll be the end of it. So that's the interesting thing is that he knows who his dad is. I feel like he's seen evidence to support that he should have known that this could get violent or this could end badly based off of just his father's behavior. I think all through the film, you see Travis not entirely happy with the way his father's handling things or, or not approving of the way his father's handling things. It's almost like he should have known that this is what was going to happen, but yet he thought it could play out differently. And that's where the, the sort of naivete comes in. I agree with you. It's that thing where Travis sees his father, the way that he handles 
Bud, the way that he handles Stanley, even the way that the encounter with Will goes at the start, there is evidence there. But I think that it also comes from a place of like hoping that Paul would make different decisions in this situation. There's also this element of Travis almost becoming like his parents. This idea that, you know, he doesn't necessarily approve of how his parents act or react to certain situations. But yet, without him even sort of being aware of it, he's slowly becoming like his parents. Just this idea that you, as you sort of come to age, you in some way adopt these traits that your parents had or or slowly become more and more like your parents, even if you didn't necessarily like those qualities in your parents. And I think that's here a little bit too. But that's what's great about this film is that you can kind of look at this in many different ways because it is so open-ended and don't give you the answers that you can kind of read a lot into these moments and it can mean many different things. Something else I really like about this film is the restriction of information. And there's this constant feeling of, can I truly trust or believe? And, you know, we talked about a film lying to you versus like the unreliable narrator element. And I, I don't think that the film ever necessarily lies to us, but I do feel like, what can we trust? What can we believe? And at the core of Paul and Sarah's household, there is elements of distrust with outsiders. And the film really enhances that because it holds back so much as it is. It holds back on what we as the viewer and the audience know and understand to be true. It would not have surprised me at all if at some point there actually is no virus or anything like that. And because we we don't know what's happening outside of this space. That is one of my favorite elements of the film. And it's it goes beyond just being ambiguous because all of these sort of decisions support placing the viewer in the perspective of the characters. For the most part, we know what they know. They think they understand the virus, but the way the virus sort of behaves sort of contradicts maybe some of the things they say. What the virus actually is, they don't know, so we don't know. The things that Will says that appear to be lies, we don't get the answers to those because Paul doesn't get the answers to those. He views them as red flags for Will not being trustworthy, and and we view them the same way. Stanley barking into the woods, what is Stanley barking at? Well, we don't know because the characters don't know, and on and on and on. It's essentially like that fear of the unknown, the unanswered questions, who can you trust, who can you not trust. The filmmakers are putting us in that perspective right along with the characters through all of these unanswered questions. I think it goes beyond just like not answering questions. I think it very much has purpose behind it. You gave excellent examples of this. I think for me, and I just keep going back to the moment where things fall apart for both of these families, talking about the restriction of information and what characters don't know. I think it also kind of comes up with the end here. When Paul ultimately shoots at Kim, who's holding Andrew, and Andrew is killed, you know, we don't know, and we never have a sense of, is Andrew actually infected? You're given hints that at the end, like after the fact, we see Travis being infected, but we don't know how much time has passed. What does that situation look like? It could have been something else completely. There is that question, even at the end, what was the cause of this? Was Andrew ever actually sick? 
it's obviously revealed that Travis is sick. When did Travis become sick? How did Travis become sick? These are things that we still don't know. They can inspire conversation and they can, you know, get people talking about their different interpretations. But ultimately, it's because the characters don't know. Will and Kim can believe Travis is sick. But up until we see that, we don't really know that that's true. Paul and Sarah can believe that, you know, Andrew is sick. They purposely sort of hide his face and kind of keep that hidden as a way to kind of keep that secret too. It's just all these things where I guess we just really don't have the answers as to who, when, and how. The conventional way of looking at it is, oh yeah, it makes sense that Andrew got Travis sick. But even in that scene where Kim is like hiding Andrew and, you know, concealing Andrew, I didn't necessarily read it as he is sick. I read it more of a, this is them still just trying to protect their child. All right, baby, come on. Keep your eyes closed for me, buddy. It's okay. Well, if he's... Shh, shh. Quiet. See, that's what's interesting is you can read it multiple ways because does Will say it at some point to Kim, like cover his eyes or keep his eyes covered? And that could refer to the fact that we have multiple characters pointing guns at each other and they're trying to obviously physically protect him, but also protect him emotionally or psychologically from this traumatic situation. But then there's also this element of like, how does Paul determine if Will is sick at the beginning? He's like, open your eyes, let me see your eyes. And we see the black eyes throughout the film. So clearly, like that being a way for people to determine who's sick. And you could think of it as an audience member, or if we're in the perspective of Paul for a moment, we could think that when Will says, hide his face, that Will is trying to hide the fact that his son is sick, hide his eyes. Again, the film perfectly sets up these pieces for us to interpret it many different ways, and then at the end of the film still be not entirely sure what the answer is. And I think that's good writing and that's good direction. Going off a of perspective, I had mentioned earlier that I think this film is essentially from Travis's perspective. A lot of the events that we see in the film, obviously Travis is a part of them, or even the moments in which two characters are having a conversation, it's revealed that Travis is either watching or listening. And so everything we're kind of seeing is from Travis's perspective to a certain extent. This is leading into something that sort of bothered me. I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on this. It's the moment where Will and Paul have made this agreement that they're going to trade water for food, but essentially the agreement is they're going to go recover Will's family and bring them back. Paul is, says to Sarah that he's going to spend three days with the family just to ensure that they have no symptoms of being sick before he brings them back. So they leave and we then follow them on their way to recover Will's family. And we get this sequence in which they're ambushed by two men and they defend themselves. And it's a moment, it's the first moment I think that truly takes us out of the perspective of Travis. And what's, what's interesting is I feel like the scene has a purpose. The scene, well, if I wanna be cynical, it's a injection of, of action into the film, but also, it's like maybe the first sort of seed that Will and Paul can't trust each other because after they're ambushed and, and Paul shoots the guy. You didn't have to shoot him right away. What are you talking about? They came after us. Just, fuck. Do you know this guy? Huh? 
Autonome! You said you travel 80 miles, you just see a fucking thing, and we barely get down to this fucking I've never seen this guy before in my life! I nearly killed him myself! Sort of establishing that even though these two men have sort of come to an agreement that is mutually beneficial, they still can't trust each other. And I think that's ultimately the purpose of the scene. I think the film knows that, like, we need to get back to the house. We need to get back to the family, and we need to ultimately get back to Travis's perspective. Because they never show Will and Paul with the family. He's said he's going to spend three days there, but we cut from, you know, that ambush scene resolving itself and then them arriving back home. So to me, it feels like the filmmakers are aware that we need to get back to the house, but we needed to show this ambush to establish the seeds for doubt. Uh, my, my problem with it is ultimately it breaks perspective. What I perceive as the perspective, Travis is the character we're seeing this film through it's his eyes we're seeing the film through i'm probably less bothered by it than you but it is a it's a scene have always stood out with this film that don't necessarily work for me because one you touched on it feels like an action sequence because the film needs an action sequence you touched on the fact that it breaks the perspective. I think I'm a little less bothered by it because I do feel like there is this, while it is primarily Travis's perspective, I think that it's actually also a little bit of Will's perspective as well. Not as not as frequently, not as prevalent. And maybe it's because Will's character is very interesting to me because of how they craft it and how there's so much question around it that it's like, now I want to follow this character. And and I think Christopher Abbott plays him really well in terms of the subtlety that he brings to these questionable moments. Absolutely. I think that really, above everything, all that scene does is enhance the doubt and the distrust. And I don't know that it serves much more purpose than that, but I've always kind of looked at it as this questionable element of, was this part of like Will's plan? And, and is there like a nefarious element to Will? He has to kind of change allegiances because he was with these people and now they're dead. You know, we, we don't know. Those are just hypotheticals that I kind of toss out there. But we kind of meet Will in this questionable circumstance where he's breaking into the house and then he's held captive for days. And ultimately, he's kind of coerced into an allegiance in a way because either Paul's going to kill him or his family's going to die. So that partnership between Will and Paul is very questionable to begin with. And I can't help but wonder if that ambush is giving us more about who Will possibly was. And that's what the film is trying to do here, or at least raise more questions of who will, you know, who is Will, and can he be trusted? This is the scene where the movie is trying really hard to make us question Will. The The movie is trying to do this, where I feel like everything else that happens really sort of feels like it's happening naturally. It, it feels more organic. This is the one where it's like, everything feels a little bit more forced. Yeah, I agree. And I ultimately, it bothers me from a perspective position, but it also bothers me because it feels sort of out of place in terms of happening or evolving out of the film naturally. But then it also just feels like almost like a necessary complication from a 
script writing perspective, you know, we had a very strong turning point in which we've now agreed that we're going to recover Will's family and bring them back. We're moving into the second act of the film involving both families. And it feels like we have this goal, this objective, and we know what we're heading towards. And then, you know, we have to have a complication that gets in the way. And so it just feels like a sort of a necessary complication from a script writing perspective. And I just don't think this film needs those types of things. It, this is not that type of film. It's like a little bit of all three of those things that kind of make me not really care for this scene. I know that we were talking before this recording and you didn't really give me much, but um, you were less of a fan of this one than I am and maybe even a little bit less than I expected. I guess you want to talk a little bit about that? I do have a couple of story things that do bother me. I'll just get these out of the way quickly. Do you think that this is a slowly paced film? I would say no. Okay. I actually do feel like we're kind of in and out of scenes and we're kind of on to the next scene where I think I would like just a little bit more to just kind of let the film breathe a little bit. I guess I would like more just seeing them living, seeing the the two families living in that space. We we don't need like dialogue scenes. We don't need scenes where there's like a, a lot of interaction. There's a moment where like Travis is watching or kind of spying on Will and Kim shortly after they've come in. Those are just like some of those moments where I'm like, I kind of want more of those to just give a little bit more life. I would agree. And I would even start earlier. You know, we have our cold open in which but is killed because he's become infected. They take care of his body. There's slight moments of grief and mourning his death. You know, they sit silently at the table, plates full of food in front of them, almost, you know, like no one is sort of hungry. No one is in the mood to eat. You know, they sit there silently. It's night, they go to bed and immediately Will shows up and the story gets going. I would have liked to have seen more moments between the family establish that relationship between Travis and his mom and Travis and his dad and even between Sarah and Paul. And then I also would have liked to have seen how they function as a family, you know, surviving when Will and his family show up. There's scenes and then there's montages of Will teaching Travis how to chop wood. The scene before Stanley runs off Travis and Will are chopping wood and Paul is just standing there with a gun, like a prison guard or something. Is it crucial to the story? No, but I would have liked to have seen what was that like before Will showed up? Who did all the work? Obviously, it was Paul because Travis doesn't know how to chop wood. I would have liked to have seen that dynamic. Maybe it's a situation in which Paul doesn't trust Travis to do these things. And we see that dynamic. And then Will shows up and he he teaches Paul that it's okay to kind of loosen the reins a little bit and have trust in his son and, and allow his son to do these things. Maybe we establish his overprotection of Travis. And then we see Will sort of like chip away at that. And then maybe we see something bad happen. And then immediately Paul's going to blame Will for that. He's going to blame him and say like, this is why I didn't let Travis do these things or, or just understanding what it was, the dynamic was like before Will shows up because we get none of that. And then Will is doing all the work and, and it's just like, I would have liked to have seen how Will changes things, how Kim changes things for this family, but we never see what the family's life is like before 
they show up. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think I was as critical of that when I initially had seen it during its theatrical run, but upon revisiting it, yeah, I agree with that. Even something as small as like, Paul feels very meticulous. Let's see Paul rationing. Let's see him having like an inventory. You know, some of the monotonous things. You touch on the scene where like Will is showing Travis like how to chop wood. I do like that moment in the film. That's just a really good character moment. I do think that we see Paul being overly protective, but it just feels like a very aggressive fashion. It's interesting that you bring up Paul with the gun as like Will and Travis are there. And it's like this prison guard thing. I sort of felt like that anyways with the interactions that they do have. You know, Paul does strike me as very controlling in that way. I mean, just reiterating, you know, they talk about like, don't go out without a gun, you know, like you have to have a gun for protection. So Paul was doing all the work while like the gun was just at the ready or what was the situation in which he was handling all this by himself and now he's so comfortable kind of just taking the role he's taken on now that will's here it just or is he just holding the gun because will's there because he's not fully trusting will it's i don't know i mean i just would have liked to have seen that because i think that is part of this story you say the monotonous moments those are the moments that define sort of the lives we live And in this case, a film that I think is so much about putting you in the perspective of the characters, I feel like that's an important part of the story. I also want to kind of talk about the time jumps that happen here. I'm going to ask, do you feel like those work? What time jumps? Can you give me an example? You talked about how we see like Bud dying and, you know, they burn his body. And then like in the next scene, it's Will breaking in. There's like that three day time jump where Paul comes back with Will, Kim, and Andrew. I I think that there's other moments like that where I question like how much time has actually passed. Stanley ran off and now he came home. There are these moments where I'm like, there's actually probably more time and, you know, that's, that's happening in between there. I don't know if it's entirely clear. I mean, so the, the three days that Paul's gone, that one feels weird to me, but it's also just because I think I would have approached that differently. I think I would have stayed in the house with Travis and Sarah. Then Paul shows up with the family and found another way to establish this distrust between Paul and Will, other than the the ambush and the two guys. That one felt a little weird to me. I understood it, but it just it didn't quite work for me. There's obviously time passing because we get several montages of the whole family you know, working. Uh, Sarah's showing Kim like their water system and they're out there chopping wood. And I had the thought like, where's Andrew during all this? Clearly there's time passing there. It's not really clear. I did think that Stanley running off and Stanley coming back was the same day. I guess maybe because Paul says, we'll go look for him in the morning. And then Travis goes to bed, has what we assume is a, a nightmare. And then encounters Stanley. So I just assumed it was one night. I don't know. I don't know. I kind of bring this up because another theme and another element that this film deals with is grief and loss. And, you know, when you've lost somebody and when you're in a stressful situation, it does feel like time passes differently. So I've kind of questioned, okay, 
how much time actually has passed between scenes and some of those things that we talked about with like establishing the family or the the home environment i think probably would actually add to that and give a better sense of that but i i, th- I think that solves like bigger problems with the film rather than time passage though and this is where i ultimately fall on this is i just think it feels to me that the film is eager to get to its big moments. You know, it's eager to get to Will showing up. It's eager to get to Travis's next nightmare. Then it's eager to get to Stanley running off. It's eager to get to these big moments that it doesn't want to slow down and, and just show us these moments that I think would have added to the film aren't entirely necessary. I think the film works overall, but I think it would have added something. And I just overall think the film is a little rushed in pacing. If you're used to traditional horror films, you might say this is slowly paced. But I think taking it for what it is, I think it it could have taken a little bit more time and it would have added to the film. Well, and I think that there's ways that you could create those those moments, those like living moments, and still have there be that lurking threat that's that's out there because we'll talk about this when we get into the filmmaking technique this film does an excellent job with atmosphere in general that could easily translate to paul hunting he encounters the deer sarah and travis are picking berries but you know you can use the traditional tropes of they hear something and okay we have to go just little stuff like that the film executes the question of what's out there so well I think in general, that there's no reason to think that they couldn't execute it in those living moments. This is something that I think depends on how you read the film and whether it's even a concern. As someone who acknowledges there's many layers to the film, one of the big things for me is this idea that grief or fear will sort of infect you and turn you, a human being, into a monster. Given that, is it a concern for you that Travis dies of the virus rather than it being something to do with like the climax, this big conflict between the two families? Just let me throw out an alternative. Imagine a situation in which the film leads where it ultimately goes, but Travis dies in this conflict between the two families. You know, he gets shot by like a stray bullet. Bad example, but just to illustrate my point. And he dies. Sarah and Paul are kind of left with like, we were trying to protect our son. We became these people who did these awful things. And the consequence is we actually actively did something that led to the death of our son. And it being about them becoming monsters killed their son rather than we became monsters and then our son died of something else. Thoughts? So I'm going to kind of contradict myself regarding the question of Andrew actually being sick. I kind of look at this as Travis was doing something helpful. He was doing something caring and compassionate. And in the end, he contracted the virus and and he died from that. So while the film focuses on like the grief, the distrust, all of those things leading to this, you know, disease that in, that infects you, I kind of viewed that as the kindness and the compassion for another individual leads to that same toxicity and can infect you that same way. I mean, it kind of creates a little bit more of a dour 
look on something that is positive, like caring and compassion. But again, that that is also accepting the fact that Andrew was infected to begin with. But I think that the infection is just a metaphor for something else. Well, that's true. And obviously, there's people who think that Travis is infected from the very beginning. And obviously, that would, in a way, go against this idea of Andrew being sick and spreading the illness. But then at the same time, it's like, are we missing the point by trying to understand the virus in this way? Should the virus not be viewed as something that is contagious the way we think of viruses because it represents something more? And so analyzing it as if it's just a traditional virus is kind of reductive in some way. And if we look back at our discussion regarding possession, it's the same thing. There's meaning behind the creature. There's more to it than just, okay, there is this disease that's infecting people and killing them. I I didn't bring this conversation up to say, like, this is a complaint I have with the film. I just think it's maybe an interesting conversation because ultimately I think the paranoia, the fear, the distrust is more interesting than the virus itself. I guess the ending is maybe not satisfying in a way, and I don't mean satisfying in the way that audiences expected it or audiences wanted answers, but just in the way that Travis goes maybe doesn't quite work. But Let me ask a question. Since we're kind of talking about things that maybe didn't work for us, we've talked about like the meanings and like our interpretation of things. Do you feel like this is a layered film? Do you feel like there's many layers to the meanings behind things, the characters. I do. I don't think they're all developed at at the same level. I look at Paul, and if I'm being honest, I actually find Paul to be the least interesting character because I do feel like he's maybe a little bit more one note with what we see of him. He's either authoritative or he's distrusting and questioning. Will, I think, actually, maybe this is also a performance thing, but I I feel like Will has layers to him. I don't feel that for Paul. I even question, like, the layers of Travis's character, you know, and again, acknowledging, like, we we have our feelings about the dream sequences. I kind of feel like maybe the dream sequences are trying to force layers upon Travis that maybe don't necessarily fully come together. I think the thing about Travis is that I think this kind of functions as a coming of age story for Travis in a way that there's nothing to come to. I feel like he's absent of layers because he's put in this position at such a young age. They're now living a life that is just about survival. But to be forced into that life at such a young age, he's got nothing. He hasn't discovered who he is yet. And he has no defining characteristics. He's certainly creative. We, we see him drawing and stuff. And he's certainly compassionate compared to other characters. And there's obviously the element of like his sexual awakening occurring and having no sort of release or outlet for that. He sort of becomes obsessed with the first woman he encounters that's not his mom because that's all he's got in a way it can only lead to one place like there's nothing there's not really a life for him and i sort of agree with you with paul you know stuff that we haven't really even discussed that i think is present in the film but not fully developed like i said is the idea of casting and the idea of whether paul 
is actually Travis's biological father potentially being a question? You know, whether when Travis dies, does Paul feel like he failed Travis? Or does Paul feel like he failed Sarah because Travis is Sarah's son? Not to say that he doesn't love Travis. I think there's clues to support this. I mean, Schultz has mentioned that it is the Paul character is a mix of both his stepdad and his biological dad. There's this idea of just fathers and sons in general. The people who ambush Will and Paul are two men, one older, one younger, most likely a father and son. There's these ideas in here. I just don't know if they're all fully developed in the way that we would say it's like a a really layered film, but I think they're in there. You touched on the element of fathers and sons, Paul and Travis, but you have Will and Andrew, the other two people that show up to to shoot at Will and Paul. But then you also have the element of Travis's like coming of age, sexual awakening. Is this film trying to do too much? Or is it maybe just trying to tell too many stories that maybe don't kind of come together fully. A critique of the film that I think I'm in agreement with you on is we don't see these characters' day-to-day lives. So this father-son relationship between Travis and Paul maybe does fall a little bit flatter because we don't see that. We don't see those interactions. We don't get a sense of how they truly interact other than warden and prisoner almost. To me, that's a really interesting story. You have these things that should be kind of working together in this film, but they do just feel very compartmentalized. And there's also like two of the big ideas or themes, grief and fear. And I don't know if those fully mesh together or fully integrated, especially the grief element. We start with this death that really impacts Travis, you know, and this person keeps appearing in Travis's nightmares. You know, so there's this element of grieving this loss, but it's sort of overtaken by this this fear of death or this fear of other people, fear of the unknown, all these things. But it's like the way it's handled here, grief and fear are very disconnected. And I don't know if they're both given their due in this film. I didn't walk away saying like, this is about too much the way I did about Synecdoche, New York. I think the film works, but I do think there's maybe things that just are a little bit underdeveloped. And this is the thing. I mean, it's a short movie. It's a film that I think could have been significantly longer. There's real estate to explore these ideas and also to infuse a bit more life into it. When it comes to horror films, whether they be traditional horror, art house horror, I think that there are things that individuals really gravitate towards. You have people that are big fans of torture devices that are used to kill people in interesting ways. You have people that are big fans of creatures and monsters. You have people that are just there for kind of like the tense suspense. I'm a sucker for the atmosphere of a horror movie. I am a fan of, like in this case, the isolation, the separation between people from civilization. To me, that's actually why I really do like this film and I'm actually more forgiving of a lot of those issues because what this film is most successful with, in my opinion, is crafting an environment, crafting an atmosphere, creating tension, whether it be like at night where, you know, everything is very dimly lit, that darkness kind of has that ominous feeling. But even in the daylight, 
One of the things that I, I really appreciated about It Comes at Night is there is this like darkness to the daylight hours. You know, you can tell that it is daylight, but there is still this kind of like creeping atmospheric darkness that that exists. One of like the moments that I'm like, I, I feel like a sense of like tension and dread is those shots where you're almost in like the perspective of the character and you're looking off into the woods or the distance and you're almost like put in that spot of I'm trying to find what it is that they're looking at. And clearly we never see that. We don't know. You know, we talked about the movie poster. You brought that up behind the dog kind of looking out. There's just dread that kind of comes with that. That shot you just mentioned is so much about the framing. You know, the film uses a lot of symmetrical framing, you know, just blocking a character directly in the center of that frame. And that's the case with the dog. But then there's also all of this headroom as we're sort of looking through the dog at this environment. You can't ignore the movement, particularly the slow push in, how much that works to this. And it's used in moments that seem sort of untraditional. So kind of my thoughts on this film is we rely so much on this symmetrical framing. And I think this is so much about conveying this sense of control, the characters having control over their environment, over their situation. They're in control of their fear. They're in control of their paranoia, whatever these emotions are. But then as soon as you add that slow push in on that very symmetrical frame, it implies that maybe the sense of control is, is actually really fragile or is all an illusion and that they're, they're this close to sort of losing it which we ultimately do see through the actions of the characters. And of course, the slow push-in is great at creating this sort of suspense, this tension. It's used so heavily that it maybe loses a little bit of its effect. I would agree with that. There were moments where, understanding the purpose that it serves, it became a distraction and started to pull me out a little bit. I just think there are certain moments where it's used, and I think it's used for a reason. I, I do think... Schultz is a talented filmmaker, and he's a filmmaker who's thinking about the reasons to shoot something this way and and what it's adding. But there's moments where I think maybe is less important. And by including it in those moments, it makes the moments where I think it is maybe a little bit more important, less impactful. But that being said, I think it's effectively used. I think the way night scenes are lit is pretty incredible in this film. The use of, of just flashlights or a lantern, it feels like real night. It doesn't feel like movie lighting. And it makes you think like what is hidden by this darkness. And then when you do see things, like particularly outside at night in your flashlight or whatever picks up on something, it gives the impression that, wait a minute, what was there? Did I miss something there? Just the paranoia that comes from truly representing, I think, what night kind of feels like. Yeah, I had this as a supplemental material that I wanted to touch on, but there was an interview that Trey Edward Schultz talked about lighting, especially at night, and how they tried to focus on utilizing practicals that were sort of beefed up because he didn't want the scenes to look like movie lit takes me back. There was a point in time years ago where I was trying to work out this idea and it would just take place at night. I had the terrible idea of lighting strictly with like flashlights. This film, like by all accounts, executes that. Yeah, it can be done now, especially with cameras that can handle that 
low light better. If I have to ever shoot a, a scene at night, this is kind of what I would want to go for because I do hate the blue tinted but brightly lit look. And I do hate the lot of ambient light look. I guess not always, but frequently it just looks artificial. Obviously, this technique works really well for this film, but also I just kind of, I think it looks really good. But I do actually want to talk about the scene with Will and Paul. Did you grow up in this city? Uh, no, I, um, I went there for Kim. I chased her there. Hmm. Big family? No, it was just me and my dad. and My dad was a mechanic. And then I was just an only child. You're an only child? Yeah. I thought, uh, you, you say that y'all were living with your brother? No, uh, yeah. I mean, it's technically her brother, but he felt like my brother, my brother-in-law, you know. Huh. Historically, we've talked about just like, not that we're opposed to coverage, but you know, if you can cover something in like a two shot or or a wide or a master, you know, we're advocates of that. I wanted to talk about this, though, because for this film, there's other examples of this one. But for me, this one just like really stood out. All of the coverage that is done in this scene are singles. I really like what they're doing here, because with a film about isolation and distrust, by shooting these as singles, it's serving a purpose. This is a case where I would say that we're making the right decision by cutting back and forth for this conversation. Especially between like Paul and Will, who have this ever-changing or shifting dynamic between them. I think a lot of the decisions made on how we're going to shoot scenes between these two characters is well thought out and really well executed. In this case, yeah, I mean, it's a moment in which Paul is potentially trying to be welcoming to Will, but I also think there's an element that he's still unsure about Will and he's testing Will. And it's a moment where he's trying to encourage Will to let his guard down and he obviously does to the point of sort of slipping up. It is so much about these characters not connecting or Paul immediately being like, I, I don't trust this person. There is no sort of common ground, common agreement happening. Whereas, I mean, if you did shoot it as a two-shot, it would be a good way to suggest that they are finally beginning to trust each other or made some sort of agreement. I think an interesting scene kind of going off of this is the moment where Paul walks out to Will, who's tied to the tree, because you see the camera communicate the shifting dynamic between the characters. We follow Paul out, long take, pulling back, following Paul long take sort of immerses us in this situation, this moment. And then the camera, when it gets to Will, goes past Will, rotates around the tree as Paul checks his hands. And then we have the situation in which we have essentially singles with one shot. And there's a cut there, but it's essentially rotating to reveal information. And then the big moment is where it crosses from one side of that line, one side of that access to the other. And you can read this different ways, I think. I mean, you can read it as a moment in which Paul begins to trust or begins to take the chance to trust Will. And so there's that shift in perspective, that change. Or it's a moment in which, you know, maybe we see Will manipulating Paul and 
we see that shift over to the other side as Will is beginning to sort of convince Paul of something that, which is against his better judgment, depends on how you read the scene. But then there's that moment where the camera pulls back and frames both of them in a two shot, representing the moment where they've come to this agreement to go recover Will's family. So however you read the sort of shifting dynamics between the characters, we go from singles to a two-shot to convey that connection, that moment of mutual agreement, that moment of maybe a bit of trust being formed or two characters taking the chance to trust each other. The camera is communicating a lot of information about the relationship between two characters. So to kind of spin off of that, I want to get your thoughts on the variations of the shots of them at the table. We have like three or four instances and in each instance, we kind of have a different sort of emotional feel. The first time we see the sequence, it's Paul, Sarah, and Travis shortly after Bud has died. And then the very last one is Paul and Sarah sitting across from one another with Travis's empty chair, middle of frame, sort of where your eyes are drawn to. So I think there's two different approaches here. It's like, if it's going to be just Paul, Sarah, Travis, they have one approach for that. And then if it's both families together, they have another approach. If it's going to be both families, now they shoot both directions, I suppose, in some scenes, but it's usually Paul in the center with the other characters on the sides and Paul being sort of like the leader. He's the one sort of explaining the rules or he's the one trying to get to the bottom of like what happened you know like who opened the door paul is at the head of the table and he's the one sort of taking control in these moments but what's interesting is that when it's just the three of them just paul travis and sarah paul and sarah face each other and it's travis who's in the center at what would be like the head of the table and he's often looking at camera it's it's sort of not, I think, what you'd expect, but it's also one of the things that immediately, I think, clues you into that Travis is the person you want to see this film through because he's at the center. He's where I think our attention is drawn. And that first time that we see that happens very early in the film, like you said, it's right after Bud dies. It's also a series of moments, I think, that's setting up and leading to the final shot. You know, we are essentially setting this up as a pattern, that this is how this family sits at the table together. And then when we cut to that final shot in which Travis has now died and it's just Paul and Sarah, we get that same setup, but with Travis gone, it leaves all that empty space in the middle. By setting up the pattern and breaking that pattern, it creates this additional meaning out of that shot. And it's a situation in which, you know, maybe there's this this emptiness, this void between the two characters now because ultimately the person they've been trying so hard to protect is gone. You get the sense of emptiness. But I think that's the power of setting up a pattern and then breaking it. The way that we're shooting this and the way that it kind of comes back does really establish this is the routine, this is the family structure. There are certain things I don't like about the end of the film, but I think that that last shot where it's like juxtaposed against, 
you know, that earlier shot of them having dinner. I felt like it was probably one of the most heartbreaking moments of the film. In that moment, I felt like that's where the most grief came from. I don't know that filmmakers always think about is just that pattern of of shots. And sometimes people get, well, we've used this shot before, or we've used a similar shot. But if it's communicating something, and if it's conveying that pattern, like you mentioned, it definitely serves a purpose. And just talking about like, the cinematography serving the story and and serving this film. I think it it definitely shows that a lot of thought went into what is the visual language of this film? What is it trying to communicate? What is it telling us? Well, I mean, the other thing, just in terms of visual patterns, there are a lot of profile shots of characters. Without mentioning specific examples... I think overall, it's just this idea of it being something that is obscuring emotion or obscuring information between two people. So like as an example with Travis, Travis is frequently shot in profile looking at other characters. And I think there is an element of Travis being unable to express his emotions in a healthy way, unable to express his emotions to his parents. And so this profile showing this barrier to his emotions, to what's going on with him, and we don't truly understand what he's thinking or feeling. And ultimately, I think sort of bottling up these emotions or hiding these emotions is one of the things that could potentially be leading to the dreams, because the dreams depending on how you look at the dreams, but the dreams being his only outlet or expression of emotion. But then if it's like a scene between Paul and Will in profile, it could be just hiding stuff from each other. Theory, I guess, is that like you shoot a close-up straight on, you get everything. You get the emotion, you can read the character's face, the character's eyes, and by just shooting it in profile, there's a barrier. You're unable to read what would normally be Legible. So you touch on the big thing, and that being profile shots really being utilized to conceal information or to conceal something about a character, dialogue. We started out this episode talking about the lack of information given the concealing of information. It's something that the film does well. It's just further enhancing these these emotions that we're getting. And, and I think that framing that end sequence and having Paul and Sarah also being profiled there, I mean, it's communicating a lot of them withholding their own feelings from each other, which I think adds to the to the emotion and the sadness of that shot. So Justin, we've we've talked at great length about how much you love the dream sequences. There is something about them that I appreciate from a technique and technical side, and it's something that we talked about actually doing on a project we worked on together. And that was shifting aspect ratios. I know, and I'll acknowledge, I'm not the only person to have noticed this. Um, but one of the interesting things to me was like the shifting aspect ratio into the dream sequences, how it would reset when we were out of the dream. But then that sort of that end sequence where Will and Kim are trying to leave, and it's that really tense moment. Even though that's like happening in the real world, the aspect ratio shifts to an even more tight aspect ratio. So it's this 
feeling of these nightmares that Travis has had this whole time bleeding into the real world and actually becoming something worse than than what was in his nightmares. So I know we kind of touched on like the nightmares not maybe not necessarily working, how they're really basically just very overt that it's a dream sequence. But I think that this is why I'm not necessarily bothered by that because it serves a purpose later on in the film. I mean, I think he said he wanted it to be something you don't necessarily notice, but you sort of feel. But at the same time, it is something that is intentional to then draw a connection to the end. The film wants you to know what is a dream so that then you can begin to see how the dream seeps into the real world. If you think of your top and bottom bars representing something and it being more than just about change, it's it's like this idea of something sort of coming for you, something sort of closing in on you. This may not be entirely intentional. I think it exists. This idea that the bars are black, which obviously we've already established that the film is, the night scenes are very dark, heavily populated by darkness and black. And so these bars getting larger and larger and squeezing the image down represents everything that night represents as well. It is the it in this title. It is, you know, whatever you want it to represent. If it's fear, if it's the illness, the side effects of the illness, if it's loneliness, something else we didn't really touch on is this idea of Travis sort of sneaking around at night and listening to other people's conversations, almost like it's a way of, to connect with other people. But the point being is whatever that represents to you, those bars almost representing that as well. And it's coming for you in these moments. Here's a question for you, Joe, since you know you mentioned that we discussed doing this, do you think this is an effective technique or do you think that this is something that is a distraction? It's certainly a, a technique that he likes to use. Is it something that works for you? I actually like the idea and the concept of it more than I generally like the actual execution. I'm giving it high praise for this film. A lot of times it just stands out, making it a distraction more than enhancing it. It's become somewhat popular now, but at the time when this was starting to become a thing, it was like a sort of unconventional way of manipulating the image for a certain effect, which I always support. You know, if there's motivation behind it, justification behind it, I always support it. Like you, I think I respect it in theory more than I actually like it when I see it. I want to highlight a interview that uh, Trey Edward Schultz did along with Joel Edgerton, Carmen Yogo, and Kelvin Harrison Jr. It was the Build series. There's a really interesting element that Carmen brings up in this interview about her kind of building chemistry with Joel and Kelvin for building that like family dynamic and how at one point Joel Edgerton basically utilized just like canned foods that you would find like basically in an apocalyptic situation and, and made a meal for for the three of them. And I thought that was kind of like an interesting like getting into character and sort of like building that relationship. I do feel like the chemistry that these characters have in both family dynamics 
comics. I think we see it a little bit less with Christopher Abbott and Riley Kehoe. You know, it's it's still there, and I, I think that they did a really nice job of crafting those relationships. So I'll admit, when I was listening to her discuss this, you know, this is something that I would envision that, you know, if you have the time, the resources to be able to build that relationship before your actors get on set, I mean, this is ideal, I think. Something as simple as if you're doing a film about couple or relationship, like having them go out for dinners, going to see movies, going to do things that they individually would like to do to sort of, you know, take some of that pressure off and actually build more of that natural and organic chemistry. I honestly think the performances really make this film for me. And I mentioned Christopher Abbott earlier. I think he's the one given the most to kind of chew on. He's the one who's given like these moments of like almost like getting caught in a lie or whatever it is. And I guess Edgerton's reaction to those moments as well. The obvious one is where they're having the drink and he mentions being an only child after having mentioned his brother previously. Just the way Abbott handles the sort of realization that he slipped up. You know, whether it's actually a lie or not, he would be aware that this would be sort of a red flag in the eyes of Paul and realizing that he really messed up in this situation and the way he handles that, all the choices he makes playing that that sort of emotion just work really well. And, and then on the flip side, I guess, in this situation, Paul Edgerton almost feeling a bit betrayed and, and almost coming across as like his feelings are hurt almost because he's been betrayed. I just think moments like that make this film what it is. I kind of went into this with the perspective of this could be a horror film that Justin likes based off of its simplicity. You have limited locations, you have characters that I think are interesting and that are played well. At least I think maybe those elements speak to you as I think that those generally spoke to me. I mean, you're right. Those are the elements that I like, and those are the reason I like the film ultimately. There are additional elements that I feel like don't work, or there's some additional elements that I just wish maybe were not present because I don't think they add to the story. I think, you know, and this is something that I try to talk about on this podcast. I'm, I think, maybe sometimes successful in it, sometimes not, highlighting the the film grammar the creative technical decisions should be motivated by something the story the characters relationship between two characters so it's something that we've obviously talked about previously but this is a good film to demonstrate how camera can really sort of illustrate the relationship between two characters and the changing sort of relationship or dynamics between two characters it's demonstrated here with combination of camera setups and editing. So like you talked about utilizing alternating close-ups or whatever, demonstrated through camera movement and the way a camera moves through a scene. I think that's something to study and learn from and, and take from. I had small technical critiques, but I don't think you can ever claim that there isn't intention behind the decisions being made in this film. So I think that's something to study. And there was an interview with uh, Trey Edward Schultz in which he talked about finding and repurposing mistakes in the film. And it was something about like a character tripping and falling or a character kind of like awkwardly entering or exiting a room. But this idea that 
these moments that were not intentional, these moments that maybe feel, at least from the actor's perspective, as like a mistake, you know, something that you're going to want to go again to fix are things that actually kind of bring life to the film. So finding those moments and kind of actually including them in the edit and repurposing them in a way that tells you about the character or the situation. Uh, I thought that was really interesting and I think something that is worth attempting in your own work. That's all I really got right now. What do you have for takeaways or takeaways as a filmmaker? I'm going to share this from a USA Today article. I didn't make it with the mindset of, I'm going to make the scariest horror movie ever, says Schultz28. I remember editing the movie and someone asked, is it scary? And I was like, oh, I didn't even think about that. Should it be? It's about my fears, the unknown, and mortality. Those are the scariest things to me. I think that the most interesting stories for me are when a filmmaker is trying to utilize those internal struggles, those internal fears. On the last episode, when talking about possession, you know, it was brought up about how that film, some people view it as basically like therapy. And there's disputes over that. Here we have a director who is basically kind of owning, like, these are the things that I'm thinking about. He wrote the film, basically the very first rough draft-ish version of it, he wrote in three days after his father passed. And what I think that he does well is he has his own understanding of what this film means. And as a filmmaker, I think that you should always go into the film that you're making with an understanding of what does this mean to me? Because Justin and I have just spoken at length about our interpretation of things, our beliefs about what certain things mean. And that's kind of the beauty and the joy of film is we can look at it, we can interpret it, but to the person who's creating the art, they may have their own separate meaning. That's the thing with the movie. I mean, it stemmed from a personal place first, you know? and it was losing my dad. And then this movie spewed out of me. Um, and I became like really excited and fascinated by like if I could put those personal elements into this totally fictional story and see how people took that, you know? So if you wanna come just for a scary movie, there's that. But I'm more excited by like if the movie thinks, you know? If you get home at night and you're laying in bed staring into the darkness and you start thinking about this movie, that excites me and I want people to talk about it after. All right, Justin, on our next episode, we're going to transition out of the art house horror world into more traditional horror. What do you got for us? We will be talking about John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. I think it's one of his films that doesn't get a lot of respect or discussion. So yeah, I'm eager to discuss this. I was eager to rewatch this. Have you seen this film? I actually have not. 
there's been a number of podcasts and YouTube favorites that have done like John Carpenter marathons who have talked about his filmography. I know this one has generally ranked relatively high, at least as of recent discussions and reviews of this work. I'm excited because, yeah, it's a blind spot and... I can't wait to, to sit down and watch it. Thanks for listening to our discussion on Trey Edwards Schultz's It Comes at Night. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you'd like to support the show, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the podcast with someone who might enjoy it. If you want to let us know whether you agree or disagree with our opinions on the film... Or if you have any thoughts or questions about the show, you can email us at scenebyscenepodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to follow us on Letterboxd, it can be found at letterboxd.com slash Justin Johnson. Joe can be found at letterboxd.com slash jrlefebvre83. Links will be in the description. And join us next time for our discussion of John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Look, you don't have to look at the set anymore. I mean, the movie's over. Your movie was over. That's what you said. There's nothing going on uh, in movies right now. Great movie, huh? So refreshing to see something like this after all these cop movies. Have you seen a lot of movies here? What are you so crazy about movies for? Obviously, they don't watch enough movies. That's part of your problem, you know. You haven't seen enough movies. All of life's riddles are answered in the movies. Do you have any experience in motion pictures? Quite a bit of experience. I'm uh active renter at Blockbuster. I love the fact that you did all this work. I think it will help you later, but not on this movie. Sorry, can we cut? Still rolling. You know oh. No, not still rolling. Cut, 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 cut. And cut! And cut! Yeah, great work, everybody. That's a wrap.